What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am thrilled to have a really exciting show for you today. I have with me, believe it or not, the inventor of the adductor canal block. And we'll talk more about that, but uh, it's, it's exciting. And we're going to talk about some really interesting stuff. I have Dr. Jeff Swenson with me. He's a professor and director of anesthesiology at the University of Utah Orthopedic Center and formerly director of cardiothoracic anesthesia at the University of Utah. Uh, Dr. Swenson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thanks, Jeff. You know, I've heard so much about this from all my residents and the younger faculty. This is, in fact, I rarely talk to anybody who says they haven't heard of this podcast. So that's a real credit to you. And I'm really thankful for you to let me be on here and share this with you. Well, thanks. It's a thrill to have you. And, um, you know, I want we're going to talk, obviously, about kind of the history of the adductor canal block and then this modified uh, block that you have been publishing about and doing. And, and that's going to be really interesting. But I want to start by asking you to just tell us a little bit about you, because you have an interesting career and not everybody who does cardiac anesthesia obviously ends up inventing new regional blocks. So t- talk to us about um, kind of how you got where you are in your practicing career. Well, my, I trained at a very heavily regional-oriented program in San Diego at the Naval Hospital, uh, and we also were fortunate enough to have one of the first monoplane uh, echocardiography probes. And so I, I actually went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester to do advanced clinical training in cardiac anesthesia and then uh, pursued getting certified in echocardiography early in my career. So echo was very heavy in my career and regional was very heavy in my career. So I guess it's kind of the perfect storm when we realized that we had portable machines and we could see things. Uh, We were one of the very first programs to completely abandon nerve stimulation in about 2003 and go exclusively to ultrasound guided. Uh, So it was very much a marriage of technology and interest. 
Okay. Well, fascinating. And, you know, I guess that's true that you obviously are using at least these days, right? Uh, whether it's doing trans transesophageal echoes or whether it's doing um, regional, you're using the ultrasound technology. So, you know, when I, you, you and I talked about this a little bit before we started recording, when I was a resident, which wasn't that long ago, uh, you know, we, for knee surgery, we did femoral nerve blocks. And uh, I, I think that's rarely done anymore. So let's start, tell me a little bit about that transition from femoral nerve block for these procedures to the adductor canal block. And then we'll get into kind of what the adductor canal block is. Okay. So I, you're right. Absolutely. Uh, ultrasound actually changed femoral nerve block there. If you go back in the history, there used to be three separate blocks that were described in the inguinal region. One was the three in one block. One was a femoral block and one was a fascia iliaca block. And if you get really nitty gritty on the, on the anatomy, and we actually have this on our, our website, uh, which I would like to mention now because it has a lot of fresh cadaver dissections and ultrasound anatomy, and that's www.safeultrasound.org, one word. So you can go look at these fresh anatomy dissections, and I think it'll give you a lot better understanding. But we realized that the injection deep to the fascia iliaca put the local anesthetic in the correct plane. And so it kind of obviated the need to have three separate blocks. You were really delivering the local anesthetic to the same place. The downside to that was surgeons were pretty tired of having their patients not be able to rehab, uh, not be able to uh, worry about uh, having a fall and breaking their ankle. So as soon as the adductor canal block came out, there was a lot of interest in having a sensory block that was motor sparing. Uh, and so that really changed things. Uh, it took a little while to catch on, but once it did, it was pretty much the femoral block was left in the dust. Okay. It so that was really, place. yeah, sorry. Say that again. It still has a place. If you need analgesia above about four centimeters above the superior pole of the patella, a, a femoral block is still worthwhile and you need to do it. But for things from the superior pole of the patella around the knee, adductor canal block works very well. Okay. So it sounds to me like the move here was about muscle weakness, right? The idea was as kind of always with pain procedures, we'd like to get, uh, we'd like to get the uh, lack of pain, but we don't want to get muscle weakness. And so the femoral nerve block, for sure, muscle weakness was just a part of it. And so now this idea of can we do this in a different way with the adductor canal? So let's talk about that. Tell us what the adductor canal is, where is it? And, uh, you know, what do, what do we want to know about it? Okay, so the adductor canal was described a long time ago by a, it's also called Hunter Canal, and it was described by a Scottish surgeon, John Hunter, who lived in the 1700s. He described it. It's been used to block the saphenous nerve for a long time. So we were not the first ones to say you can do an adductor canal block to block the saphenous nerve. That was described as back far back as 2007. Our paper didn't, our, our uh, publication didn't come out until 2009. But the, uh, the difference of the uh, adductor canal block for just the saphenous nerve uh, and the extent of what we described is what I'd like to talk about now for just a second. So let me just go into the anatomy a little bit. The adductor canal begins at the apex of the femoral triangle, and it goes down to the adductor hiatus. And the adductor hiatus is a hole in the adductor muscle that the SFA passes through to become the popliteal artery. So there's some really practical anatomy here. If you are at the, at the level of the inguinal ligament, 
and you're doing a block of the femoral nerve, you can block the femoral nerve two to three centimeters away from the artery and the nerve by just injecting deep to the fascia iliaca. But when you pass the apex of the femoral triangle and enter into the adductor canal, it's kind of analogous to the axillary sheath. Now the artery and the nerves are in the same fascial compartment. So you, you're kind of forced to do a very close perivascular injection in the adductor canal, whereas that's not the case at the level of the inguinal ligament. So we were doing uh, adductor canal blocks for saphenous nerves like everybody else. Uh, we did them on one kid uh, back in 2007. And I said, hey, I bet your, uh, your inside of your knee is numb. And he said, well, yeah, my whole knee is numb. And I said, I thought, well, why would this kid lie to me? And so he said, yeah, the outside, the top, the whole knee is numb. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So later on, I got my residence and I did one on myself. And <laughs> he was right. My whole knee was numb. And then I stood up. I could feel the intraarticular difference in sensation and the skin. But when I stood on my leg, I realized my quads were completely intact. Now, realistically, do you get some weakness in the vastus medialis? Probably. But you couldn't detect it. I couldn't detect it. So the next thing I did is I talked to the surgeons and said, hey, we had a pretty cool thing here. And so I did bilateral adductor canal blocks on myself and ran up and down the stairs and they were pretty impressed. Uh, and so in 2009, we published the, uh, the uh, correspondence to regional anesthesia and pain medicine where we said, hey, in addition to the saphenous nerve, you get the medial femoral cutaneous nerve, articular branches of the obturator nerve, the medial retinacular nerve, at least, and it's motor sparing. And we included dye injections showing that, yes, you can get the, the motor block uh, sparing with good sensory loss. And that was the first publication where people realized this is more than just the saphenous nerve. This is a substitute for the femoral nerve that spares motor. And the key to this is the whole reason we started doing it in the first thing, first place was to spare motor function. Right. And so a couple questions. First of all, I, I got to ask you, uh, did you do the blocks on yourself completely by yourself or did you have a fellow or resident help you out? I had them inject and I drove the needle in the transducer. Okay. Impressive. Um, this is, uh, you know, there are like classic stories right throughout medicine of people who do the initial proof of concept on themselves. I think that I, and I'm not going to remember the name, but the, the doctor who, uh, I'm not going to do that one. Yeah. That guy, <laughs> pylori. H pylori. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, of. No, exactly. I didn't go that far. <laughs> well, I'm impressed. So you gave yourself these blocks and ran up and down the steps for a proof of concept. All right. And then my other question is, so we think of, uh, at least again, I'm reaching back here because I don't do regional anymore, but we used to do, you know, what we called a pop saf, right? So for like a, a surgery in the lower part of the leg or, or, you know, ankle or foot, sometimes we do a pop, popliteal block and a saphenous nerve block. So that saphenous part, is there a difference between what, what that is, that saphenous nerve block and the, the, uh, what you're describing here? Yes, because if you, depending on where you block the saphenous nerve, you can block the saphenous nerve at the ankle you can use the um, saphenous. You can use the saphenous vein as a surrogate marker for the nerve at the mid shaft of the tibia, all the way up to the pes anserinus, which is just below the knee. Or you can block the saphenous nerve selectively by injecting uh, on the sartorius side of the tissue plane between vastus and sartorius. So there's lots of places, but that is this is different than that. 
Okay. The way people used to do a saphenous block, though, was to do uh, an adductor canal block. Okay. I don't think anybody ever bothered to look and said, hey, what else do we get? Right, right. Interesting. Okay. So this was in some ways just kind of serendipitous. You had this kid, you did it, and he happened to mention, you asked him, and he happened to mention that he had this, and this led to this kind of investigation. Yeah. Yeah. But, 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 you know, it's kind of like, um, I don't, I mean, I, it was serendipitous, but we had spent a ton of time in fresh cadaver labs dissecting upper and lower extremities. So it wasn't like we didn't know where to go from, from hearing that information. We put two and two together pretty fast. Sure. So it was, it was like the guy who works hard on the football team and gets, you know, gets a lucky break. Uh, right. On a play too. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, this sounds like a great alternative. Instead of the femoral nerve block, which is going to get you this muscle weakness, we now have this alternative option, the adductor canal block, which gets you the pain relief you need, which gets you the analgesia, but without the muscle weakness. Now, I know the end point, which is that you've, you've uh, moved on to an alternative method, so there must have been some downside. So what is the downside to the adductor canal block? Yeah. So when we first did this, we, it, I want to stress that the reason we put this out there was because it was motor sparing and it provided analgesia. Anybody who's done this knows that you don't get total analgesia from an adductor canal block. You're, you're going to get considerable relief, but you'll still need some other pain medicine. The other thing is uh, we, we want to stress that the reason people did it was because it's motor sparing. And we initially described it the distal third of the femur. If you look at the um, superficial femoral artery, which is the continuation of the femoral artery after the bifurcation into the profunda femoris, it travels in the adductor canal. At the distal end of the adductor canal, it dives deep through the adductor hiatus. So paradoxically, it's more difficult to see the SFA at the distal end of the adductor canal or the distal third of the femur than it is like the mid shaft or proximal femur. And so people are understandably worried about getting vessel trauma and intravascular injection. And so the natural tendency is to move up the leg when you're doing a, an adductor canal block to avoid vessel trauma, to avoid intravascular injection. So you can see the artery better because it's easier to see. The problem is what does that cause or what does that compromise in terms of motor strength? And that question is frankly still up in the air, but in our initial description, we showed that dye spreads proximally. So, and, the, and the argument will go back and forth. Is it where you inject? Is it how much you inject? The point is injecting in the sheath, the more proximal you go, the more likely you have motor block. And we're gonna talk about some uh, maybe um, not so valuable information in our literature against what's in the orthopedic literature too. But that's kind of the, so the two things we were worried about, vascular injury, intravascular injection. And, and if I can go on real quick, I just wanna give you some example. Both the things that we were worried about came to pass. So if you look in the literature, you will see uh, in images and anesthesiology, June, June 2019, femoral artery dissection from a adductor canal block. If you look at ANA case reports, 2016, November, you'll see iatrogenic pseudoaneurysm after continuous adductor canal block. If you look at um, regional anesthesia, October 2019, you'll see local anesthetic toxicity from intravascular injection. And if you look at case reports in anesthesiology, 2018, August, you'll see massive thigh hematoma. So we don't know, I mean, you know that what you see 
in the literature is a fraction of probably what's happening in the real world. So right. this is obviously a problem. So we know that was a problem. And motor weakness is also a problem. If you look at um, Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, 2021 January, that was just you know a couple months ago, right. the leaked article was motor weakness after single injection adductor canal block. And so the surgeons, this is on their radar screen. They were seeing nine to 10% of people with these blocks having weakness. And so uh, it's, a, it's a problem. Part of this has been enabled by some misleading uh, anesthesia literature. And that is, I'm not sure it's, it's uh, necessarily intentional, but it's probably not from reading the whole article. And the, the one example I'd like to point out is in anesthesia and analgesia 2016 August, where they looked at mid-thigh injection. And if you look at the conclusions of the authors, they say there were no statistically significant difference in quadricinks for Morris strength after mid-thigh injection. The problem is the means were not different. Means don't really help you very much if you're the one guy or the two guys in the other group that had quad weakness. So it's almost worse to say, hey, I'm going to do a femoral block. You know, if you say, I'm going to do a femoral block and you watch out, you're going to have quad weakness, take precautions. That's one thing. Compared to, I'm going to do an adductor canal block, don't worry, you're going to have quad strength and you walk outside and fall down. So to say the means are not different, but there are individuals, if you look at the data, there are individuals in the adductor canal block at the mid-thigh that did have weakness comparable to femoral nerve block. So that's almost more dangerous. Um, yeah. Another article was uh, in anesthesiology in 2019, September, and this looked at quad weakness specifically in ACL patients. And once again, the authors make this conclusion, a proximal adductor canal injection location decreases opioid consumption and opioid-related side effects without compromising quadriceps strength compared to mid or distal injection. Well, you may read that and go, hey, that's great. But if you look at the author's methods, it's a little bit concerning for two reasons. Number one, they said, and I'm quoting, block assessment was conducted before performing adductor canal block baseline motor strength, and then every five minutes after local anesthetic injection until 30 minutes. Sounds pretty good. 30 minutes is pretty short, but if you read the rest, it's even worse until 30 minutes had elapsed or surgery commenced. So we really don't know, and they don't give us interval data or raw data. We don't know if half of these patients only got checked for 10 minutes. They don't tell us. And right. so this is, can be a little misleading. Right. So I just think you got to be really careful there. Yeah, thanks. So you highlight a couple of really important things. One is that if all you do is read the conclusion in the abstract of an article, you're you're missing a lot potentially. And so, you know, you need to be critical about your reading of the literature. And then I want to just summarize. So, you know, it sounds like there are some significant issues potentially with the adductor canal block. One is that uh, if you are, you're right next to the vessel, so you can get into problems with bleeding, intravascular injection. And if you go more proximal to try to get a better view, now you're going to get potentially into weakness. So, you know, maybe it's some advantages over femoral nerve block, but as this uh, developed, some clear drawbacks. So it sounds like you now have a, what you're calling the simplified adductor canal block. Tell us about that. Okay. So, um, we, 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 we recognized this the minute we published this. We said, this is ultimately going to be a problem. Uh, so we went back to the drawing board 
And, you know, as Indiana Jones says, most uh, archaeology starts in the library, right? And Absolutely. so we went back to the library first, and there's a great article. It's probably the most definitive article on the innervation of the knee joint that I've ever seen written. And it's in Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research, 1994, uh, volume 301. They do a, about 45 cadaver dissections, and they talk about all the variations of the, uh, the, the knee innervation. And the one thing a lot of anesthesiologists like to focus on is they say, well, what, what's the anatomy of the ductor canal? We thought, well, what happens after the adductor canal? So what we found out was from reading uh, Dillon and Horner, their article was that the nerve to the vastus medialis, and there's three main nerves that people talk about when they do adductor canal block. And to be truthful, there's probably way more than that. These are the ones we focus on, the nerve to the vastus medialis, the saphenous, and the medial femoral cutaneous nerve. So the nerve to the vastus medialis leaves the adductor canal, but if after it leaves the adductor canal, it travels on the deep surface of the vastus medialis, right adjacent to the tissue plane, separating it from the sartorius. And lo and behold, the, the saphenous nerve and the medial femoral cutaneous nerves do the same thing, except on the opposite side, on the sartorius muscle, the deep surface. So we go back to the anatomy lab, we do the dissections, and all of this is on the website. If you look at the lateral side of the adductor canal on the deep surface of the vastus medialis, there's the nerve to the vastus medialis. And if you look on the medial side on the reflected surface of the sartorius, there is the medial cutaneous nerve of the thigh and the sartorius muscle. So we thought, well, uh, the tissue plane between the vastus medialis and sartorius is really easy to see in everybody. And those nerves are laying right adjacent to that. So why not inject on both sides? We tried doing it with a conventional needle, a single bevel needle with some limited success. Uh, and it turns out that um, there is the, the same guy who makes the Gertie Marks needle, the same company that makes the Gertie Marks spinal needle makes a needle that's fenestrated on the last two centimeters. So the last two centimeters of the needle, it's a pencil point needle, has alternating holes on either side of the needle. And when you pressurize the needle, you get equal outflow from each port. It has to have an occluded tip for the physics to work on that. Right. So we use that, we put it across the tissue plane, one centimeter on each side. It works very, very well. And the nice thing about it is, is all you have to do is put the transducer on the vastus medialis above the superior pole of the patella, move the transducer medially, see that tissue plane. You can go proximal to see the SFA to verify that's where you want to be. Put it across the tissue plane and inject and you're done. Uh, and we've actually studied this in um, total knee patients. That, and this was published um, a little while ago in um, regional anesthesia and pain medicine. Uh, and I'm going to get you that. It was uh, Regional Anesthesia Pain Medicine 2019, uh, and I'm listed as the first author, Swenson J.D., so you can look at it um, on PubMed. And but, we'll, put these, uh, we'll put links to all these articles you're mentioning in the show notes. Yeah, so, so the, uh, this study showed fewer needle passes, shorter procedure times, shorter block failures or fewer block failures and fewer vessel punctures, which was really reassuring. And our residents learn how to do this block literally in five minutes. It's very nice. And it's very reassuring to know that you're not one millimeter away from giving somebody an intravascular injection. And let me just interject real quickly here about why an injection in the artery is so much more dangerous than in the vein. Because when you're using epinephrine as an intravascular marker, you inject in, in a vein you get pretty immediate feedback that you're in a vein. 
Uh, and that's been shown to be very sensitive and specific. If you inject in the artery, you get a delayed reaction because the, the injectate goes all the way through to the capillary bed, then comes back. And frequently, what by the time you realize you've made a terrible mistake, it's too late. Yeah. So we really feel it's important to not be close to the artery if you can avoid it, especially in some of these people with big legs where you can barely see where you are and you're trying to get right next to it. So right. we also did um, uh, non-inferiority trials for rest pain, pain with ambulation and oxycodone use with this. And the, the adductor, the simplified adductor canal block performed very well in all of these categories for pain and oxycodone use in 12 to 24 hour intervals. So, so this was, we're pretty excited about this and it's, it's made my anxiety level go down considerably uh, about doing this uh, because it's a very easily recognized landmark and it's very easy to do. Uh, so now I'll talk to you when you're, if you have any questions and I'll tell you about the potential downsides. <laughs> yeah, I, so I will definitely ask you about that. But uh, so, so fascinating, right? I think this is really interesting. I love the process of getting there. In my mind, as you're, as you were talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, this is the difference between the approach to medicine of saying, great, you know, I was taught how to do something, I'll keep doing it. And between saying, you know, kind of this, this constant questioning. And I always try to get our residents to, to think we should, you know, your whole career, you, ideally, you'd be always questioning, is this the best way? And what, else, what could we think about? And what are the downsides? And how might we think creatively about that? And I love that, you know, you kind of had this thought, went to the cadaver lab, you looked, what, what is beyond this thing, right? Like, do we even know what's the next stage? So I think just as a, as a way to approach learning, this is fantastic. For the block itself, you said you've looked at, and you know, it's effective in terms of reducing opiate consumption. Is there, did you look at, or has anyone looked at, you know, yet the um, kind of a direct head-to-head -head of this versus the traditional adductor canal block? Yeah, that's what we looked at. We looked at it in this uh, total knee. Uh, in the, the study I just talked about, we were comparing it against traditional adductor canal block. And I so gotcha. it less vessel punctures, faster, fewer needle passes, and it compared, and there were fewer block failures too. Because you can imagine if you're, it's like doing an axillary brachial plexus block. If you are a couple of millimeters too far away from the artery, you can get an air ball. And if you're trying to do it the traditional way in a ductor canal block, you can get a pretty spectacular failure by not being in the actual sheet. And right. I, I think it's funny what you said about finding a better way to do it because I'm old enough to have lived through the transition or the advent of echocardiography for rescue echo. And I can remember sitting in the operating room trying to decide if my patient was, was volume depleted or volume replete and thinking, gosh, you know, I could probably, I'm, the heart looks pretty good with this echo. And we actually did the study uh, back in, you know, probably 15 years ago coming off bypass where we proved that the echocardiogram, even subjective assessment of preload changes and contractility are better than a PA catheter and, and how, how, uh, how all those things, you know, if you're looking for a, a, a better way to do things, they're out there. Right. Um, yeah. It, it, and, and, you know, it's, I think it's about that being comfortable with discomfort, right? It's very comfortable to say, I've got it right? I know how to do this and I'm going to just keep doing it. That's easy. It's comfortable. You feel good. You know, you know how to do it, but it's that being, being okay with and comfortable with the discomfort and thinking what, you know, what new, what modification, how could this be better? Even if that means a little bit of a challenge and a little bit of stepping outside your comfort zone. All right. More with Dr. Swenson when we come back in just a second.
Stay with us. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. So, so tell me, well, what are there? Uh, there must be some drawbacks. What are they? Well, I think the biggest thing that would concern people, and and I think this is a this is a valid concern to be sure. So. The one thing, this involves definitely some uh, uh, intramuscular injection because you're going to have spillover, uh, no question. And so the question becomes, am I going to see myotoxicity from this? And are we going to trade one set of problems for another? And I think that I mentioned this also, I'll I'll mention this uh, for you to to, uh, make a link for this, but I think that one of the best things that's ever been written about myotoxicity was written by Joseph Neal uh, in Regional Anesthesia and Pain in November, December of 2016. And he has a three-case series of myotoxicity that occurred during uh, or after an infusion in the adductor canal, a continuous infusion of local anesthetic. Now, it's interesting because if you look at this <clears throat> there's on the one hand, it's kind of like Tevier in, in uh, you know, Fiddler on the Roof. You know, on one hand, we have very convincing animal data that myotoxicity definitely happens with local anesthetic. Um, and we know that it's worse with bupivacaine and ropivacaine compared to lidocaine. And we know that it can occur with fascial plane injection, but it's even worse with intramuscular injection. We know that. And so that is a, that, that's a definite uh, issue. On the other hand, despite all of this animal data, outside the ophthalmology literature, which has almost overwhelmingly the number of cases that have been reported in the literature have been after retrobulbar block, in the entire confines of medical literature, there are two case reports of myotoxicity that achieved any notoriety. One was a case of a myofascial block, and one was a case of an interscaling block. And this is after, I mean, everybody who's done a block has done hydrolocation where they've injected some local anesthetic in a muscle. I I mean, this must happen millions of times a year. Joe Neal had three cases in his own practice of like uh, 4,000 continuous adductor canal blocks. No one's ever reported anything like this after a single injection of of uh, uh, an adductor canal block. Now, 
I have given my cell phone number to 50,000 patients who have gone home after nerve blocks. Everybody who gets a block or an anesthetic at our institution gets my cell phone number because I don't want to hear about it from somebody else. And, and I don't mind being called. And I learn a lot from patients. I've learned a ton from hearing what patients don't and do like about what happened after surgery or during surgery. I've never had any indication that someone had overt myositis. Having said that, I'm not dismissing this as a potential issue. Uh, we have not seen it. And so I'm grateful for that. Um, so that's that's my story on myositis. And that's kind of the, if you want to read Joe Neal's paper, you kind of get an idea for yourself of what the what the current thinking is about that. Okay. Let me, let me uh, just interject and ask you, how often do you get called uh, by you know, patients? I, I get, most of the stuff I get called about, uh, I can handle over the phone in a few minutes. And it's interesting because uh, I found that people, there are some people who don't like the really, really dense blocks. And we do a lot of catheters. And as a result of that, I have found that it's better from my standpoint. And also, if you, if you believe the myositis literature, the two biggest things that you, can, that you can put somebody at risk for is high concentration over a prolonged period of time. So we use the lowest concentration we can in our catheters for a couple of reasons. Because people want pain relief. They don't want an arm or a leg like a piece of wood. And so most of my patients would rather take an occasional Percocet and maybe know that they have an extremity than to have a completely dead extremity. Yeah. And the other thing is we published back in its day, back in 2006, we published, which was at the time, the biggest uh, series of ambulatory catheters placed with ultrasound. And the only complication we had was in somebody, and we were using quarter percent of the time. Now we use eighth and 10th for lower and upper extremity catheters. But at that time, the worst complication we had was somebody who was so numb, they put their leg up on a, on a, on a lift and they gave themselves a foot drop, which thankfully went away because they couldn't feel their leg on the peroneal nerve. Luckily, it resolved. So I'm more of a fan of saying I'd rather have them be a little less numb than more numb. So that's okay. kind of the biggest thing I've learned about that. So are there any, so th it sounds like you haven't seen the myositis. Any, no. have you seen any downsides to this simplified adductor canal block? Um, people will be sore at the injection site. We used to use dexamethasone for these. And I think this is, I will be, go on record as saying this is purely anecdotal. Mm -hmm. uh, we had some prolonged sensory uh, uh, decrease in the saphenous distribution for like days or weeks. Uh, we stopped using dexamethasone. Those have not, there's not an issue anymore. I don't know if that's what it was. We haven't done anything else different, but, but we just finished a series, a, a, a big article on multimodal, uh, a, a really cool thing that I could talk to you about later on that I'm really excited about. It's a packaging system for multimodal analgesia after surgery. And we did it in ACL patients and they all got this block. So we just finished a hundred in a row and no real issues. I mean, some people are sore where the injection was sure. for a day or so, but that's it. Okay. Now you brought up catheters. Do you do catheters or single injections for these? We never do adductor canal catheters. And, and the reason is number one, most of the time by the block, by the time the block wears off, which is usually about 30 to 36 hours, if the patient's on multimodal, they're doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, I think everybody is and should be spooked by the, uh, the infusion, uh, you know, those three cases of myositis. Uh, and so I just don't want to go there. Plus, you need a lot bigger needle to put in a catheter than you do a single shot. And the other thing is 
this technique wouldn't work for a catheter. It, it's by definition a field block uh, across that membrane. So right, okay. So um, it sounds like this is a great technique that allows you to avoid certainly a muscle weakness. It allows you to be distant from the artery, so you're not really uh, concerned with intravascular injection. You do need a specialized needle, but uh, when you have that, it sounds like it allows you rather than having to go distal and then proximal, you just get one shot in there. You get both both nerves on either side. Um, so it sounds really, really fantastic. Um, and we'll definitely put links to your website where people can see, uh, you know, um, the images of this. Um, all right. So the one thing that comes up sometimes is, you know, you talked about dexamethasone and how you got some extremely long lasting sensory, def- uh, you know, deficits that maybe were not optimal. Um, any, anything you want to say about liposomal bupivacaine or, you know, also known as Expirel uh, for these blocks? Yeah. You know, um, one other thing, can I mention before we get into that? Yeah, please. So when we're talking about myositis, this is some information from the, from the, from the, uh, kind of the, uh, cross-pollination between uh, ortho and anesthesia. Take a careful look at your bottle when you're going to get your local anesthetic. And if you pull up epinephrine-containing local anesthetic off the shelf, you'll notice that the pH of that is usually 100 times greater acidity than non-epinephrine-containing. And it also contains metabisulfites. So the pH can be as low as 3.3 in epinephrine-containing local anesthetic off the shelf, plus metabisulfite, compared to an average pH of 6.5 with uh, plain preservative-free. So you say, well, okay, you know, why would they make that? Well, uh, there's a lot of stuff that people do that you haven't figured out is bad yet. But orthopedic surgeons got into trouble about 15 years ago, and they were doing intraarticular infusions of uh, local anesthetic. And most of them are not familiar with local anesthetics. And so, you know, I'd say, what are you guys putting in there? I'm putting marking. Does it have epi? Does it have metabisol? I don't know. And so they actually had a big problem with chondrolysis and cell death of the chondrocytes. And when they Mm -hmm. went back and studied, lo and behold, and this article I think is worth uh, taking a look at as well. And this is in the Journal of Sports Medicine. So this is uh, Journal of Sports Medicine, volume 38.6. 2010, the first author is Dragoo, D-R-A-G-O-O. They looked at the toxicity for cell toxicity for metabisulfite and low pH. It's considerable, uh, about a, you know, 30 to uh, three or four fold uh, increase in cell death rate when you get down to a pH of 4.5 and when you have metabisulfite. So anything that kills chondrocytes and is toxic to neurons, I don't think you should be putting in the muscle either. That's the data we have. That's why we don't do it. We mix our own preservative-free local anesthetic. If it has epi on it, we add it ourselves, and we throw it away at the end of the day because it's not stable in solution. So metabisulfite is an antioxidant, and the pH is lowered to, to, to reduce oxidation. So that's just throwing that out there. For yeah, interesting. So what do you mix your own? What do you use? What concentration? We, use, we just use – well, we use half percent for this. Uh, you could probably use lower. We haven't looked at the change in duration or effect between half and quarter, but we do use half percent plain or half percent with epinephrine that we add ourselves. So it's preservative okay. free. So um, half percent bupivacaine and you add your own epinephrine. Yes. Okay. Uh, so now on to the- And how, how much do you inject, Jeff? How, how many cc's? Usually between 20 and 30 cc's. Okay. Um, um, great. So yeah. So tell me about um, Expro. So, 
Yeah, so we were really excited about liposomal bupivacaine because, you know, liposomal, they've been looking at liposomal bupivacaine, the first publication way back in 1993. And, and so I thought, what a great thing. You get three days out of it. And so when it first came out, you guessed it, I went out and I bought some from the pharmacy out of my research fund. And I did simultaneous adductor canal blocks on myself with bupivacaine on one side and liposomal bupivacaine on the other side. And I did superficial peroneal nerve blocks on myself, one side and the other. And I did lateral cutaneous serve the forearm blocks on myself. I said, I wanna see what this is as I wanna fill it myself. And it was not very impressive. In fact, the biggest difference was how slow the onset of liposomal bupivacaine action was. And in fact, a couple of times I thought, gee, I must've missed the block on that side. And then it came on, you know, just delayed onset, but it wasn't really an impressive difference in duration. And not surprisingly, uh, this review came out uh, just recently uh, in anesthesiology in 2021, written by uh, James Eisenach and Brian Ilfeld, where they looked at liposomal bupivacaine, the clinical effectiveness of bupivacaine administered by infiltration or peripheral nerve block to treat postoperative pain. And here were their conclusions. Two, two quotes I wanna make. Thus, there are currently insufficient data to conclusively report or refute the use of liposomal bupivacaine administered as a peripheral nerve block. And the preponderance of evidence fails to support the routine use of liposomal bupivacaine over standard local anesthetics. So then the orthopedic surgeons pile on uh, in July of 2019 in um, Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, the clinical efficacy of liposomal bupivacaine. And, I, and once again, I quote, peripheral nerve blocks without liposomal bupivacaine conferred more optimal pain relief and decreased narcotic consumption in the immediate post-operative period when compared to liposomal bupivacaine with no differences thereafter. And the final conclusion was we are unable to find consistent support for the potential of superior pain relief with the use of liposomal bupivacaine. So mm. I think I'll just... Uh, that that's the that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Okay. So no, certainly no good evidence to use it at this point. For me, no. And I, I and I was I really wanted it to work. I really did. Yeah. Um, no, I hear you. And so we'll see. I'm sure more studies will be done, and and I'm sure there will be more agents coming out. So yeah. uh, we'll see as it goes. And I know you will be one person constantly asking the questions of what might work better, which is uh, really always great to know. Um, all right, Jeff, before we move on, anything that we didn't cover about this new modified um, version of the adductor canal block that you want to share? Uh, it's, uh, I, our residents, I can tell you the backstory behind how, how I got on your, your podcast. Sure. So uh, my residents kept telling me, they said, you got to tell somebody about this. And, and I said, well, I, I mean, we just use it. And he said, you should, you should tell Jed Volpaugh and tell him on his <laughs> podcast. I said, well, yeah, well, that's a good idea. And so there you go. And the rest is history. <laughs> that's great. That's great. And I'm sure you will have and people. All yeah, no. And I'm sure there will be people who want to do this and are, are going to their, uh, their attendings and saying, hey, let's, um, let's try it. Um, well, thank you very much. Let's move on to the part of the show where we make random recommendations. Uh, what do you think? Do you have something that you'd recommend folks check out, something you've really been into lately or, or an all-time favorite? Yeah, so everybody's familiar with the, uh, with the Broadway play Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, author was, of that book was Ron Chernow. And he wrote another book that is great 
Uh, if you're interested in Civil War and Reconstruction in that era of the United States history, it's about Ulysses S. Grant. And it is a great read for seeing someone go from literally zero to an incredible hero in a very short period of time. Uh, it's, a, it's definitely worth a look. And, and especially the part that impressed me the most was the part that his wife played in that. Uh, Julia Grant in his support. She never gave up on him. And uh, it's an amazing story on a number of levels. So that would be my recommendation. I couldn't agree more. Loved that book. Thought it was fascinating. And there can't be that many stories as as just really uh, true stories, at least as fascinating and interesting as, as Ulysses S. Grant. So uh, thanks for that recommendation. I will recommend uh, there's a great podcast. I'm sure most folks listening to this probably also know about the Depth of Anesthesia podcast uh, put out by folks at uh, Mass General. It's really well done. And they did a recent episode looking at at tube ET tube size. And, you know, I love this partly because it backs up what I've tried to do for a while, which is to reduce the size, right? So rather than this idea that men should get eight O tubes and women seven, five, or, you know, just kind of uh, the, as big as will fit, uh, they really go into the literature about how there's really not advantages and potential significant disadvantages to using bigger tubes and folks in the operating room. And I've moved, uh, and it was nice to have the backup of the literature they reviewed there um, to really trying to go smaller. And and these days, I'm personally using really six five in women and and seven zero in men, which is a lot smaller than how I was trained. So another another shift in practice that I think is well justified. So check you out know, that episode on tube size. You know, let me chime in on that too. You know. If you look at the British Airway Guidelines, um, the one thing I love about their recommendations is they say, if you think it's going to be tough, get a smaller tube. Because it's not only is it easier to pass the glottis, but the footprint of the tube itself obstructs your view yep. if it's big. And so you use a smaller tube, easier to pass, easier to see. So I, I'm 100% behind you. Great. Well, I'm, I love having your support too. And I, I suggest folks check out that podcast for some good data you can take to your attending explaining why you want to use a 6.5 tube instead of a NATO. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks. It was awesome. All right. That was fantastic. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did and learned a ton. Let us know what you think. Go to the website com where you can leave a comment and others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter, I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. You can also join the Facebook group and join the conversation there. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C or make a donation at paypal.me slash ACRAC or on Venmo by looking up Jed Wolpaw. Thank you so much to those who've already made donations and already become patrons. It makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. Big thanks as always to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to April Liu, our social media manager, and Dr. Kimia Cash Cooley, who's still helping out as part of the team with some of the show notes. And, of course, our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Jeff Swenson, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.